Adopted babies recall language skills, epigenetic twin variations, international student destinations revealed, non-completion rates in the spotlight, mentoring students from high school to university. Hello and welcome to The Bumper, first Talking Eds of 2017. Talking Eds is APN Educational Media's weekly review podcast, comprising the team behind Early Learning Review, Education Review and Campus Review. I'm Patrick Avenal and I'm the news editor for these sites. And as I am nearly every week, I'm joined by Lauren Smith from Early Learning Review. Hello, Lauren. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Patrick. And how have you been? Pretty well, thank you. Did you have a nice break? I did. There was a bit of an overshadow of Trump, but I'm trying to deal with that as best as I can. This is the last day of the Obama administration while we're recording, so that's why we're still with a bit of sparkle in our voice. The, the darkness hasn't descended yet. Uh, off the top of your head, your best Christmas present? I don't do Christmas, so... Oh, okay. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. All right. Uh, and I'm also joined by James. James is the editor of Education Review and Campus Review. Hi, James. Hi, Patrick. How are you? I'm very well. Do you do Christmas? Yes, I do do and Christmas. what was your best present? Uh, probably a, big, a hiking bag. A hi- that's pretty yeah, good. Yeah, it was decent. And how are you feeling on this last day of the Obama administration? Uh, I, I feel dead inside. You feel dead <laughs> inside. All right. Well, let's, <laughs> let's hope that the music of Three Doors Down will perk you up during the inauguration concert. In part one today, Lauren, adoption and specifically the relationships between adopted children and their birth parents is quite topical at the moment, uh, partly in due because the film Lion is opening in cinemas around the world. Uh, you wrote a story this week about how adopted children are recalling their original languages. That's right, Patrick. Unlike Lion, which looks like a tearjerker, which I'm looking forward to, um, this is a happy story. and. It was a study done on Korean-born Dutch babies. So these are babies who were originally born in Korea and were fostered out to Dutch families. And what they found was they tested their accent in their recitation of Korean words and also tested Dutch-born babies. um, Sorry, children, I should say. This is when they'd grown up a little Mm -hmm. bit. And what they found was that the Korean babies had a better Korean accent than the Dutch babies. So, um, interestingly, they found that this didn't matter whether they were adopted uh, when they were just neonates, a few months old, or whether they were adopted when they were toddlers. So, um, basically, what the conclusion was, was that um, these babies could pick up their native tongue, even at an extremely young age. And when you when you sort of looked at the subject of adoption, how important is retaining like original birth culture to to adopted children that have been sort of moved to a new culture? Well, I think um, I haven't actually looked into this at all, but my assumption is that in many cases it becomes increasingly important as the child grows up and becomes an adult in terms of discovering and solidifying their identity. I saw Lion last night and I also, uh, in the cinema after the film, uh, Saru and Sue Brearley, the, the two people that the film is based on, appeared for a Q&A and Saru did talk about how when he left high school and went to university, this is in Tasmania, he sort of felt a pull and when he met other Indian students at university he felt a pull towards that culture it's sort of just innate and inside of him that made him want to explore it and and comes to terms with that change in culture and I feel as though that sort of comes through in, in this story as well that sort of it, it stays in you no matter where you where the where you're raised 
And it goes with the scientific principle that we, we consist of nature and nurture. So we are a product of our genetics and our environment. In terms of the film being a tearjerker, there were a lot of people in the cinema that were, were dabbing their eyes at the end. I, I personally didn't cry, but it was a very good film and I do recommend it. You also did a story this week about epigenetic twins. And that's a, an adjective I'd never heard of before. What's epigenetic twins and why has that been in the news this week? So I'll clarify, there is no such term as epigenetic twins. Epigenetic just means gene expression. Oh. So you can apply that to just about any human, including twins. So this is a very interesting story. And as I said in my opening line, it's a real life daytime television friendly tale because there were two sets of identical twins who were separated at birth and swapped. So. I don't even know how to describe this in a really clear way, but basically um, they each got the wrong brother, the wrong twin brother. And the interesting thing is, um, of course, these twins who were separated at birth turned out quite differently. In one set in particular, they, they were quite different. And what the scientists found that aside from their environmental factors, one was raised in the city and the other was raised in the country, that there were actually womb factors, that is factors in their mother's uterus that made them different. Um, these could have been the amount of placenta that was accessed and the fact that they had different umbilical cords and amniotic sacs. And this is the first time that scientists have discovered that identical twins can turn out different due to differences in utero. James, it's been quite a big week in um, higher education this week. and. Uh... First of all, we're going to talk about the flow of international students. The, after the Trump won his election in November, there was a lot of chatter around where, how that would affect university students going to and from America. We've got some data now in. Fill us in. Well, at the moment, this is before Trump actually becomes president and starts implementing his policies, international student flow into America is quite strong. It's increased by 44% from 2007 to 2017. But that could easily be attributed to, say, the Obama administration. At the moment, and but the thing is with the UK, it's different because it's only been a very marginal increase by, a four, by only 4%. So at the moment, um, the international students are heading towards the US at the moment. But um, Dr. Rahul Chudaha, he believes that Trump could ward off international students, but it's too early to say. Um, the prevailing theory is um, going among experts is that um, international students generally won't want to study in, in Trump's America, so they'll come to destinations like Australia, and they won't. And the UK immigration policies will often ward off international students as well, so they'll come to places like Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Why Why would a Trump presidency turn people off wanting to go and study at an American university? Do you think? Have you heard Trump speak? Well, <laughs> is it? But is it? A, is it as simple as? Uh, he says things which might be offensive to, say, Mexican people, and so Mexican mm. people don't want to go uh, study because it really wouldn't change the, the quality of the education, would it, if you're going to you well, know, Caltech it, or MIT? Well, it, it also depends on, on what the, the um, Betsy DeVos's education, sector, as education secretary does towards universities and all that. There have been warnings that the endowments of places like Harvard and that could be taxed, possibly declining the level of study and research. But at the same time, there was a recent survey saying that showing that out of about seven thousand students from Hawk, from the Hawk courses group, that thirteen percent wanted to go to the U.S. because of Trump, or they preferred the U.S. more as a study de destination after Trump 
was elected, which is, that was interesting. Apparently that was predominantly from Russian students. Is there is there an avenue for Australian universities to, to market their wares uh, in a heightened environment? I would say they just need to keep doing what they're doing. The uh, It is listed now, I think, as our second biggest export. Third. Third biggest export, uh, I assume, after resources. Yeah, iron ore and coal. Iron ore and coal. And the other big news that came out of higher education this week and transcended into the mainstream media was the release of course completion rates. This has been something that the the federal government and uh, Education Minister Simon Birmingham have been uh, going on about quite a bit over the last uh, 12 months, and that's the value of education and how much universities are sort of making sure that the money they spend goes towards degrees and degrees that lead to jobs. And so they published today, uh, or they published this week, a table of completion rates. And the top five were Melbourne, Sydney, ANU, Monash, and UNSW. So, you know, five really big establishment universities in major cities. And the bottom five were Murdoch, New England, USQ, CQU, and Charles Darwin. Uh, So what you would say is, you know, universities that are not in the major cities, although Murdoch is in Perth, uh, and perhaps focusing more on regional centres were the ones that had the worst completion rates. Now, James, I know that you have some strident views about the methodology that mm. arrived at at this at this well, table and the publishing of the table itself. Well, I, I'm not against the publishing of the table. It's more transparency about the sector, but it needs to be clarified that um, that it's the these universities, especially regional universities, who take up who take on students more students who study part time, so they. A four-year degree will take eight years. Hmm. That's simple. That happens often at Charles Sturt, which is uh, quite online, and, and University of New England, and now down at the bottom. An obvious table. And also, it doesn't take into account that the fact that these universities take in, take in more rural and students from poorer areas and Indigenous students who have less chance of succeeding, or well, not succeeding is a wrong word, of completing their degree in six years because, because of various reasons. That's, that's essentially my view, and, it, and this data needs to be interpreted carefully rather than just uh, a blank my school comparison, which is, very, which is a, a, a league table of the schools published by the federal government each year, um, of which university is the best and which university is the worst. So it's not actually looking at dropout rates, it's looking at a six-year period and who has mm. completed their degrees. So actually yeah. it's erroneous to describe it as a report about completion rates because... Well, it's called completion rates. That's but that's misleading. Mm, yeah, I, it's erroneous to call it about dropout rates. It's, it's essentially it is it's the amount of students within this university who complete their degrees within six years. You carried some quotes from Andrew Van, who is the vice chancellor of Charles Sturt University, and uh, he said these stats are not very appropriate to a lot of students who come to regional universities because the six-year completion rate assumes that you're dealing with full-time school leavers who are studying full-time and have no other pressures. One of the issues for the regional universities is that they have very substantial numbers of mature-age students who may be studying part-time. And one of the points I think uh, Van is making, which gets lost when you publish a ranking and everyone just looks at who's at the top, who's at the bottom, is that the regional universities do struggle with with all of these factors at play. You know, they are often taking um, second or third choice students where they didn't get into their main courses and may not be as committed. And they're always struggling with money because regional centres in Australia are often struggling, you know, since the resource boom and since the, the major industries left the town, the university is the biggest uh, employer and they're the ones carrying the whole burden of a town often. And so I, I do think that there is 
uh, you must look at these rankings with some degree of caution. At the same time, I also think that this was quite a politically motivated release. Oh, definitely. It, was, it, it came... Well, Birmingham promised a similar thing like this. He, he's going to publish a My School-style website of universities, hmm. and that's the beginning of that. And also, it's um, paving the way for his reform to build up public support to fix, um, fix up university entry standards, in his words. I also thought it was interesting timing that this was released in the same week that uh, students were receiving offers from university. Mm, yeah. It, it must have been a terrible for the universities that came at the bottom that it's sending out offers to students and then at the same time they're, they're, it's being published that you know, you're statistically less likely to get your degree within this time frame. Mm, it would have been um, quite distressing actually, yeah. Now in part three, uh, this week the University of Sydney hosted a week of mentoring programs for Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander high school students. There were two different streams. Uh, streams for there was uh, students in year nine and year ten are part of the Wingara Mura program, and those in year eleven and twelve participate in Bunga Barabugu. And if you go to our website, I have links for both those courses. The students lived on campus at Wesley College and attended sessions ranging from a tour of an aerospace lab with flight simulators and drones, music composition courses at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music, marine biology workshops at the Institute of Marine Science, and depending on the interests. There were also uh, opportunities to attend local court sessions at the Downing Centre, observe veterinary practice at Camden Clinic, conduct experiments, and also learn from local hip-hop performer El Fresh the Line. It was a very packed week, as you can tell. And while I was there sort of observing and speaking with the students, I realised just what a powerful force this mentoring program was to encourage high school students, Indigenous high school students, to stay in high school, to study, to uh, do their best at school, so that they can then apply for university and in UCID's case, you know, they would obviously want them to go to UCID, but also a more convenient university if it's closer to home or if that's what works out for them. It's about promoting the university lifestyle. And what I wanted to ask uh, you both about is whether your experience has been, uh, when your experience was going from high school to university, whether there was a strong mentoring element to that, because when I finished high school and then went to university, I went for a week and I had really bad culture shock. Uh, it just didn't fit right with me and I dropped out after a week and I didn't return to university for another four years. And I, I could have really benefited from some sort of mentoring program that sort of, you know, uh, took you with kid gloves and took you to the shallow end of university and, and helped, you, helped you in. So I'm uh, interested to know what your thoughts were. Um, I had no mentoring at all um, when it came to transition. Most of my mentoring came from, well, I lived on campus, so just to give some context, so most of my mentoring came from older students and just from their experiences. It was very ad hoc. It wasn't any official mentoring. It was just conversations with people. Would you have enjoyed going to university and actually living on campus, not an open day, but actually living at a college for a week and going to sort of, you know, what I would call like mock courses or, you know, uh, getting your feet wet courses? Yeah, that would have been good. It would have been a good taste for students about what university is and what university life and and if this is the choice the right choice of them at the time when they're 18 years old but it would have been a good just tester to see do I really want to do this Lauren what was your experience of mentoring I had zero mentoring but I think in my case I would need at least a year of mentoring not a week because I was very immature when I started university I just partied a lot I didn't care about my grades I didn't take it seriously and that sort of backfired on me later on in life to some extent. So 
uh, I think that there is a need for mentoring, but even to a much greater scale. Yeah, I, I really needed my handheld that first week of university. I just, I found it completely overwhelming, you know, the lack of direction, the lack of, you know, knowing where things happen. Uh, I came from a very structured high school environment and just the complete lack of structure meant that I was sort of like a lost in the woods almost. Mm. And it was, and when I returned to university four years later, it was completely different. I was just completely on it and I did really well in my studies. But I could see how, in, how much enjoyment that the kids at this mentoring program were getting and I could see what a, a great job it was doing. And I really do encourage any Indigenous students or teachers of Indigenous students to research this and recommend it to their students because it is a powerful uh, program that the University of Sydney is running to encourage further education for, for students. I would argue some of the onus also lies in the schools to not make themselves so structured and give them, and give them students some freedom which replicates university or even just the real world within, within reason, of course. But yeah, let students make their own decisions. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, my school, very good school in terms of results, in terms of the HSC, but I don't know how good it was at actually preparing students for the outside world. I mean, I went to a Catholic all-boys school. I didn't talk to a girl until I was 22. <laughs> you know, thank for sharing that. just but, thought um, it would be interesting that, insight. That ties in with the fact that schools should be teaching life skills as opposed to just purely academic subjects, which is something that I believe strongly in. Yeah, the, uh, the emotional intelligence, uh, I, I think there should definitely be more than that. Well, it's been a big first episode back for 2017. When we next meet to talk about education, President Trump will be ruling on high. Uh, any thoughts about the inauguration and, and the first week? No comment. I'm doing a social media blackout. Social media. I'm also off social media, so I will join you off it. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye.